This is The Lack with Nina Power and Benjamin Studebaker. It's the 100th episode of The Lack, and we're doing American fiction. I'll kick us off. American fiction follows a black English professor whose published novels are famous for their literary quality, but don't sell particularly well. His publishers want him to write novels that center his race. He refuses because he doesn't believe in the concept of race and because he knows full well that when publishers say they want a black novel, they want a novel that conforms to their stereotypes. But he's frustrated that other black novelists are succeeding commercially with this approach. He's carrying a lot of resentment. One day, for a lark, he decides to write a parody of the commercially successful black novel. He titles it My Pathology, spelling pathology with an F. He writes it under a pen name and asks his agent to send it out to publishers. It starts off as a joke. The professor assumes my pathology will be dead on arrival. But that isn't what happens. Instead, the publishers eat it up. The agent immediately tries to push the professor to publish the book. The professor is resistant, but his sister has recently died and his mother needs long-term care. He does need to come up with some money fast. Still, the professor needs convincing. He has his integrity to think about. The agent convinces him by showing him three bottles of liquor of varying qualities, all made by the same company. You can make the good stuff. Why not also make some cheap stuff? Most people buy the cheap stuff. It doesn't mean you can't also make good stuff. Because the professor needs the money, he has an easier time swallowing this argument than he might otherwise. Of course, the book only sells because, ostensibly, it's not been written by an English professor. To make the book feel real, the professor has to pretend to be a career criminal on the run from the law. When people think he's a criminal, they let him get away with anything. Any social faux pas he commits, they rationalize. And so, even though the professor doesn't do a very good job of pretending to be a criminal, his mistakes tend to work out for him. For instance, when he leaves a lunch to see if his mother is okay, the man he's dining with mistakes the ambulance sirens for police sirens and assumes he must be fleeing the authorities. Even when the professor tries to sabotage the book by giving it a vulgar name, this only succeeds in making the book more popular. Indeed, the book is so popular that it is nominated for a prestigious literary award that the professor has long coveted but never before won. This year, the professor is serving as a judge for this award, and so he has to, be pre and so he has to pretend to be unfamiliar with the novel he wrote. To his credit, he criticizes the novel and tries to dissuade the rest of the panel from voting for it. But they won't listen to him. They insist it's necessary to uplift authentically black voices. The only other panelist who shares his view is a black woman. This surprises the professor. In his view, she produces precisely the kinds of novels he wrote his novel to parody. But she sees major differences between her work and his. She says that his novel is soulless. The two black authors have a terrific exchange that is the intellectual high point of the film. The professor asks his counterpart why her book is different from his. She says that she did a lot of research for her book, that it was based on real interviews. She suggests that he's forgotten that some people's lives are hard. He replies that her life wasn't hard. She went to a good school and worked for a prestigious publisher. She says that her background doesn't matter. She's not writing autofiction. She writes about what interests people. 
He says she writes whatever interests white people, specifically white publishers fiending black trauma porn. She says they're the ones who buy the books. Is it so wrong to cater to them? He says she's feeding people's base desires for profit. She says she's okay with giving the market what it wants. He compares her to a drug dealer. She says she thinks drugs should be legal. He asks her why she isn't fed up with the limitations writing for the market imposes. Doesn't she get sick of writing the same stuff all the time? She suggests that he's only upset with her because she's a black woman. He wouldn't make these complaints about a white author who writes about white poverty. He says that no one imagines that books about white poverty are the definitive white experience. Her book contributes to stereotypes that define and limit black people. She says this is the fault of white people, not her. They're the ones who are treating her work that way. He concedes this point, but thinks she should care more about the unrealized potential of black people in the United States. She says potential is what people see when they think what's in front of them isn't good enough. At that point, a white panelist enters the room and the conversation is interrupted. The professor's book eventually wins the literary award, forcing him to reveal his true identity. There are a few other things going on in this film. There's a B-plot involving a romantic relationship between the professor and a neighbor. The professor also has a gay brother who left his wife and children and has since been living very hedonistically. The gay brother feels himself to be the black sheep of the family, and he frequently refuses to help the professor take care of his mother. She judges him, and he cannot tolerate it. I believe the gay brother is in this film because he is a gay analog for the kind of black character the professor thinks should not be written. The gay brother embodies every negative gay stereotype under the sun. But at the same time, the film insists that he is not to be condemned, that he is to be accepted, that there is even wisdom in his authenticity, in his trueness to himself. But this insistence is meant to be interrogated by the viewer. Is the gay brother contributing to negative stereotypes about gay people? Or is he speaking to a gay experience? All the arguments the professor and his counterpart have can be applied in a meta way to the gay brother. I believe this is intentional and it's very cleverly done. The film is never ha heavy handed with this, but it's clearly there for you to think about. What I like best about the film is the suggestion that the market is controlling the kinds of books these authors write. Even if the concession to the market is only partial, even if they only sometimes write the kinds of books that sell or win awards, the fact that these professors know a certain kind of book does sell and does win awards significantly influences how they deploy their time and energy. The professors are clever enough and educated enough to see through these incentives, but they are not rich enough or powerful enough to disregard them. They are able to critique capitalism, but they are not able to escape it. In this way, they capture Adorno's point about the critique of reification. For Adorno, when we criticize social phenomena, we do not necessarily change the social structures that give rise to these phenomena. But we think that by criticizing, we have accomplished something. And in this way, critique has a pacifying effect. To move beyond the critique, we would have to do something to change the situation, to alter the structure that gives rise to the phenomena in question. The professor criticizes the way the market influences black authors, but does not do anything to challenge market structures or diminish their power. His critique is compelling, but his female counterpart is right to point out that he is in an ivory tower, that he is not doing anything about the phenomena he's criticizing. 
nor does he give her anything to do politically, apart from insist that she should not personally participate in this process. His response is purely moral and ethical in character. He scolds her for the way she responds to an incentive structure he has no political plan to confront. The film concludes with the professor making a film about his experience. The professor proposes several endings to the film to the director, and we get to see each one. But eventually, the director chooses a ridiculous ending in which the police mistake the professor for the career criminal he impersonates. They kill him in a hail of gunfire. But it is clear to us that this ending is just the one that has been chosen for the film within the film, to make a point to us that there is a gap between what sells and what is good. This draws our attention to the existence of American fiction itself, to the compromises that must inevitably have gone into making it. But if all we do is critique the market, if we never progress beyond critique, the critique becomes a palliative. The terrain of American fiction is largely moralist. The focus is on how we should or should not participate in the market, not on what we can do to reign in the market or govern it. That said, it's not the place of films to answer such complex political questions. Their place is to make us think, and American fiction has certainly succeeded in making me think. There have been many recent films focused on disgruntled educators. I'm thinking of Tar, The Holdovers, and Dream Scenario. I think American fiction is significantly better than Tar and Dream Scenario. I'm not sure about The Holdovers, but that's a matter for another episode. Let's see what Nina thinks. Yes, very nice. Um... So the other, just to, to start the other show, I would uh, link to this type of thing is uh, The Chair. I don't know if you watched that. It was a kind of um, account of uh, university sort of uh, conniptions over cancel culture in which a lecturer um, makes a reference to the Nazis and it's taken out of context and it's uploaded and he's, you know, accused of defending Hitler and, 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 and he has to be suspended. But it, it's done in a very light, light-hearted way. It's not a very sort of uh, severe diagnosis or anthropological <laughs> conception of what's going on um, in this. So, yeah, there's a, there's a series. And I would, I suppose, begin by saying that it's interesting to note that this film, which I, I do think is, I do agree, is a very good and interesting film, a very useful um is actually based on a novel that references an earlier period of a certain kind of culture war. So the um, it, it, it's more to do with the, uh, I guess, where you have the situation where people were writing kind of fake memoirs. So there's the J.T. Leroy one, which is very famous, where someone is, is trying to coincide with almost like a character they've created who suffered some terrible life and, you know, being brought up but, you know, I don't know, sort of beaten since birth and having to deal drugs and sell sex. And, you know, there's a whole spate of these kind of trauma memoirs in which they were, they were sort of authors were kind of posing as the, the character, as it were. And there was a sort of series of exposés and some of them were very high profile. These were people who had gone on Oprah, uh, you know, had been part of the book club and so on. And, and there is a kind of maybe understanding that there there's going to be some of that in publishing but it's a different political moment and i think one of the interesting and very clever things about the branding for this film and the, the questions of the fourth wall and the audience not only the audience that's discussed in the film as the kind of publishing industry the the white publishing um 
publishers themselves, but also the readers. And we know that most readers of fiction are white women in the West. Um, white women read far more fiction, uh, in, well, particular kinds of fiction than, than, other, than other people, other groups of people. So we know that there's demographic concerns. But this is not a, a novel. This is a film. Who is the audience for this film? Right. We're, we're, we're midway through or hopefully at the end of another culture war, uh, which we could largely characterize, broadly characterize as being about kind of woke or anti-woke. And the way the film has been branded is primarily um, about a kind of code switching, a kind of um, parody of um, precisely as you described the what publishers think their readers want and how this plays into black stereotypes and and so on and so forth. And so that one of the trailers, apparently there are several, I've only seen one, um, really plays up the whole code switching scene with the uh, the female black novelist who's clearly well educated and middle class suddenly switching into a kind of street um, language whilst when reading from her book and being kind of lauded and celebrated and, and loved, beloved by this kind of overwhelmingly white literary audience. And as a sort of viewer of the trailer, one is perhaps led to believe that this is a film that will kind of land some heavy blows against the uh, moralism and the kind of uh, hypocrisy of contemporary woke culture. But this is not that film. Um, it's not bad for not being that film. What I think this film is really about is about um, how to tell stories about the black middle class, right? This is a story about a black middle class family. And I would say that the second, the subplot is not the family. The subplot is the novel. The subplot is the so so I would reverse your claim that the subplot is about I I think and and the point about this is to say what well, actually you think that I'm making a critical claim about what can and can't be read and and you know we're feeding you this what you know we think you want and you lap it up but actually it's really really hard to get stories made about that are kind of complex and morally ambiguous and ambivalent and moving and profound and subtle and gentle. As and, and interesting and, and funny and lighthearted. Many of the scenes involving his family are like this. Uh, very well done, very well scripted, very well acted. That actually it's it's very hard to get those stories told. And under cover of darkness, if you like, he slipped in the story um, about his family under cover of the idea that this is an anti-woke film because that's what you think you want as your educated audience. You know, that you've had enough of wokeness and we're going to sell you this film <laughs> as if it's that, right? So in many ways, I think it's it's very clever, right? In the sense that it forces the audience to question their own, um, I don't know, attention in terms of different forms of representation. So we're not only being fed the critique, but also our, our attention is being directed elsewhere and saying, look, there are stories here too. You you just also don't want to hear them. You want to hear the anti-woke story, but you don't necessarily want to uh, pay attention to the middle class black experience, right? And and he, but here is how it's done really well, right? Like this is actually a beautiful story, a very you know moving story. And so I think it's it's very clever in that regard. And I think the fourth wall scene at the end with the three possible endings, which you then realise are the film version, which is you know in the film itself. Um, point to this question of attention. Really, it's it's what will get, what will garner the most attention, uh, and that's what this film is 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 about in many ways. 
and and ultimately the the moral of the story if you like is that perhaps your attention needs to be or should be um directed kind of closer to home right so the novelist himself has made a a point right he's made a a a a a, a blow although as you say it's precisely limited in this adornian way he's not proposing a political solution to the problem of the market he's just making a a kind of sarcastic cynical point um which either you can understand as being a, a, as back backfiring or otherwise but it's true that he is also lacking as a son and as a potential love interest he, he you know he enters into a relationship with a woman who seems who is very nice and very thoughtful and understanding and he treats her quite badly um because she precisely he won't come clean he won't be honest and i think this is a film about um about being honest with those people who are closest to you which is often very very difficult for everybody um and that's what the film is really about um but yeah, I, I think it's absolutely worth seeing. I like these points of comparisons you're making with the holdovers, which I have managed to see. Uh, I think they're very different films, um, but there is this renewed focus, I think, on telling complex stories about morally ambiguous characters, uh, also in Tar. I, I liked Tar a lot more than you did, I think. Uh, I think Tar is the more serious film, but that doesn't mean there isn't room for precisely a comic um, version of, of some of the same points about moral ambiguity. And I agree about the role of the gay character in this film. Very well, very well acted, very well played. Everyone is very well um, suited to their roles in this film. And um, yeah, I think that, oh, sorry, pause one sec. Um, um so yes i suppose just to just to conclude i think it's part of a a whole attempt to you know which is very positive to return to questions of moral ambiguity making films about adult reality refusing to tell simple moral stories in its comicness it reminded me of sideways actually which is an extremely white middle class film about men traveling to to uh ostensibly understand vineyards and drink wine and and in california but but ultimately it's a kind of um middle-aged buddy movie and about um about life and love and so on and but it has a similar intelligent humor to american fiction um and so i would say the point of comparison is perhaps less tar than sideways um but I think it's 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 a very strong film uh, for that, and I would recommend that people see it. It's not yet officially out, or I think it's only just out in the UK, or it's coming out um, soon. Yeah, so I want to I want to gently press you a little bit on <laughs> this idea that the the real point is to tell a story about a black middle class family. Sure. And the basis on which I want to push you on this is is the gay brother. Because the gay brother is such a parody of a gay character that I can't possibly believe that the family story is meant to be taken fully seriously. He's such an obvious overt iteration of the thing that the film is problematizing 
that I view the family story as as just another way of doing the the political story, because the gay brother is is on a meta level very overtly the gay equivalent of the kind of black character I, that they've been arguing about. I don't agree with that. I I think that that character is more subtle than you are giving him credit for, and. I mean, to be honest, some gay men do indeed behave in this way. I mean, this is not a, a wholly baseless cliche. I mean, a lot of gay men take a lot of drugs and, and are very hedonistic. And this man has apparently come out late in life. Um, there's a scene where he um, conveys a whole series of, of very wise things to his brother, actually. And, and, you know, if we are supposed to, let's say, identify with the professor, the cynical professor, and understand his viewpoint... Nevertheless, the gay brother is the one who tells him that he um, is not honest. You know, that in fact, for all of his pretension and his critique, um, and it, it's precisely the scene where the gay brother is saying about their dead father, who has apparently committed suicide prior to the, the events of the film, that his their father never knew that he was gay. And the professor says, oh, but what if he rejected you? And the brother says, "Well, at least he would have rejected me for who I for who I am." And and this is a sort of prelude to a conversation about being honest. And so I, I think that the gay brother is actually a much wiser character, not merely a kind of bunch of stereotypes. But see, I think this is what we're invited to debate because he is a <laughs> bunch of stereotypes. But you could nonetheless argue that maybe he is speaking to a real experience, which is precisely the argument they have about the, the black character in my pathology is he, uh, and, and the black character in the, in the uh, black woman's novel, right? Mm -hmm. The question is whether these characters are speaking to a real experience and therefore there's merit in telling this kind of story or whether it is cynical in some way. And one of the ways in which it might straightforwardly be cynical is that all of the lovers of the black character, they are of different racial backgrounds. So this allows the film to be racially diverse and to qualify for various different diversity, you know, on various different diversity metrics for having a diverse cast. You know, uh, there's, you know, a, an appearance, there's one of, one of the lovers is an Asian American man. They, they kind of shoehorn in through the gay brother mm. plot. Lots of characters of different backgrounds who are kind of one-note stereotypes. I mean, maybe. I mean, Alex Perez, who reviewed the film for us for Compact Magazine, is ma was making points that are more closer to yours, I think. I don't know if you saw his piece. But he was arguing that the the various modes of representation end up perpetuating those representations themselves, that it's ultimately a safe way of, of dealing with these questions, you know, that it doesn't really rock the boat. And well, I think it is and it isn't right, because mm. since they've drawn attention to the fact that this is a device for marketing something, I, I do think that they've invited us to question it. And so one of the things I like about this is similar to Barbie. There's kind of a couple okay. different levels. And depending on which position you have on the issue, you can see whichever angle you prefer. So the film is included within itself the possibility of critiquing the gay brother as a ridiculous stereotypical character. Mm -hmm. But then the film has also suggested that if you feel that way about it, that's how it intends for you to feel. And conversely, if you look at the gay brother as this wonderful example of representation, the film has also included the possibility of, of validating that view of, of the character. Right, sure. And but so I no matter who you are, the film has found a way to 
And yes, it is safe, but it, you also are invited to think about it, which I think makes it both safe and not safe. Right. I, I would agree with that. And I, th- I think that there is this open-endedness, like you precisely point out, that the conversation between the two black novelists at the end is interrupted, right? It's an unfinished conversation about whether about representation, about who reads what, about who should be speaking for whom or in what way, whether fiction is, I don't know, allowed to uh, explore various things uh, um, and whether the there is something like the black experience or the white experience and whether novelists should be pinned to their race. And I, I it's left kind of wide open, almost like in a seminar or something like that. And the film leaves that wide open as well, I think. I, I, I mean, I can see, you know, it, but at the same time, it's like this film had to get made, right? It couldn't be unbelievably shocking in some ways, right? Like it, it's, it still has to conform to some basic parameters, like like all, all mainstream films do, right? It has to be a certain length. It has to appeal to a wide enough audience and, and so on. Um, and maybe part of the reason it was made is that it has this gay character, in it, hmm. but then it's found a way to make the gay character a way of 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 re-saying the same message that they say in that conversation, but saying it visually and through narrative. So you have the explicit conversation about the black character, and then you have the implicit conversation that we're invited to have about the gay character that's going on concurrently with it. So I see it as as not a family story that's separate and distinct from a political story, but a family story which is meant to illustrate through a different means the same thing. And they're calling attention to it with the political story. They're calling attention to the the use of the gay character in the film as a device. Maybe, but why, but why can't it also primarily or simply be a family story? I think we are somehow resistant to to that because we might associate it with a kind of sentimental view of the world or a feminine view of the world or, you know, even though a lot of the great novels are really novels about families. Because they primed us all all throughout (laughs) the movie to think about it in this way and then they make the character an over-the-top stereotype. But it's not only a stereotype. I mean, there's something I suppose you could say, I, I take your point about the the in-joke about quotas, because, I mean, the, the the siblings are clearly of different races. I mean, they're black, but they're all racially quite different. They're not, they're not, they're not um, chosen to be, to resemble each other racially, right? And like you yeah. say, that the, the gay, the gay character has these, you know, is clearly having sort of casual sex with people of all different races. And there are jokes about, um, the girlfriend. Well, at least she's not white, you know. So there are kind of various in jokes about, I guess, passing and colorism and things that probably make more sense in con- in the American context. And they they put them in the in the skimpy little little shorts, and they have them you know, doing all kinds of drugs all the time in front of everybody. Yeah, I mean, have you met gay men? Well, see, but this is the thing. They're inviting us to, to say, do we think that this is a, a an authentic thing or is it a stereotype? I do think it's a stereotype. No, I, and I think I it mean, has the same kind of, of you know, the, the, the argument. But the argument that the, the main character makes could be made by a gay man who doesn't do these things. And he could say, you know, this sure. is is 
limiting what gay people can be. It's a it's a narrow stereotype. And these arguments were made about gay representation in films for a number of years. Uh, absolutely. And I mean, if you go, if you watch Go Fish, which is a lesbian film, I don't know if you've seen it from, um, I don't know what year, I mean, early 90s, perhaps. And it's a very, it tells the story of, a, a you know, a few different women who are all loosely tied together by by their sexuality um but it very it's a very self-aware film it's it's from 1994 by rose trosh and she you know the point of the film is is in many ways to say we're not even telling our own stories let alone the stories of gay women right like none of our stories are complete okay it's, it's sort of fictionalized but you know depicts these women who are very different ideas and ambitions and the way they want to be loved and so on. Um, but it's there's a message in the film that's saying we're not speaking on behalf of the lesbian community, right? There is no lesbian community in that sense, right? Just as there's no gay male community uh, or any community really that isn't in some sense artificial. And, you know, the, the family ties, family ties are interesting because they are, largely unchosen and even where people have chosen ties as in adoption and so on it, it has a different character than the nature of community in that sense and you could say that the family is far more serious as the substantive unit or bedrock of civilization than anything else and this is quite i guess a, a bat an ongoing battle between people who see the world in organic terms and people who see it in more constructed terms or, you know, it's a conservative position now to defend the family, even though it was quite a leftist position for a long time. Um, but the family is now often positioned on the side of that which must be destroyed almost in favour of the collective or the commune or some sort of socialist idea of fungibility. And I can see why people are trying to reclaim the family against the state or against the idea that the state is attempting to encroach into those bonds and those relations and to treat everybody instead as a kind of interchangeable economic unit. You know, I mean, even Marx says that the family is a haven in a heartless world, you know, that there's something about it at the same time as it's being eroded and superstitions are being dissolved and so on. There is something um, perhaps resistant about the family against these larger molar mechanisms. And I wonder if this film is also trying to say something about family in that sense, that one has bonds, however one understands them, that are different in kind to, let's say, an imaginary audience or the people who pay your bills or... Well, there is this suggestion at the beginning of the film that the main character doesn't like his family and doesn't yes. regard it as a vacation to spend time with them. Yes. And I think that is an interesting comment on attitudes people tend to have who leave home and go off to big cities and fancy universities about their families. Yes, exactly. It's very common for people to yeah. act as if they've left people behind though it's not the case that the family that he's left behind is really an alternative to 
the university or public life for him because after all his I mean his sister doesn't last very long for one when he gets back and then for two his mother has got uh, dementia so she's not going to provide any kind of source of uh, strength for him no, but the point and then would the be... brother doesn't help him take care of her, so <laughs> no, none of these people are helping him. But the point would be he has duties to them. I mean, as the son of a mother, you know. I mean, his sister, you know, dies young, unfortunately, in the film. But she makes it clear that she had been looking after the mother, and that he had been neglecting his responsibilities and his duties as her son. If you see what I mean, you know. Right, so but the... then the the gay the gay brother is the the king of neglecting his familial duties because he walked out on his wife and children in the film yeah. and he won't help out either. But his not helping out is lauded as him being authentic and true to himself and not being willing to take the judgment and the, the negative treatment. His gayness becomes a shield against the, the critique that the uh, brother who is the college professor is subject to for not being involved enough in the family. And I think that, again, draws attention to the way in which identity is used to shield people from the kinds of critiques or kinds of character evaluations that would otherwise be made of them. You know, the yeah, brother has, has sure. broken every duty or responsibility one might think one has to family, to his wife, to his kids, to his, his parents, uh, to his siblings. And yet he is continually positioned in the film as someone who nonetheless must possess some kind of deep wisdom in much the same way that the black character who is a, a, a you know, run away from the law is positioned as this very wise character who's telling you, you know, what's really going on in the country has some kind of deep knowledge about what's true about the soul of the country that you have to capture through this novel. Sure. But I, I mean, I think one of the successes of the film is the idea that this is also, like everybody, a, a part of a family in progress or in transition. I mean, you know, the fact that this guy has just come out doesn't mean he's going to remain like this hedonistic person forever, you know, and he's he's definitely not excluded by the family. I think he's, he's kind of ambivalently positioned uh, and the wedding party near the end... Um, as someone who's loved, but, you know, it's not, you know, totally perfect. But then none of the characters are perfect. He's also the one who says that you're, you know, foolish if you think this family is is a good place to stick around in or be part of. He's the one who tells the uh, uh, professor's girlfriend that the family will break her heart if she participates in it or stays in it. Yeah, but I think that's said in a kind of humorous way, to be honest. Oh, I think he means it. No, I, I don't. I mean, their family is not like particularly different. I mean, all families have tragedy. All families have, you know, like somebody who's a bit wayward for a bit. You know what I mean? Or people get old, people get sick. A bit wayward for a bit. He walks out <laughs> on his wife and children to do drugs and have sex with lots of different people, right? And then when he's called upon to help, he won't do it. It, it, these are some really ugly stereotypes about <laughs> LGBTQ people. And the only reason that this film is allowed to get away with it is that they've problematized representation in this way that allows them to have a very stereotypical gay character and have people think that they must be making a point with it. So but even I though the character would be completely reviled as a, a, a terrible rep instance of representation 20 years ago, 
people just accept it, knead it up, and nominate the actor for best supporting actor. And but know, I, I, don't, I don't know what to tell you. It. I mean, there really are men who behave like this. Uh, you know, I've known several, some of whom are, di- are dead. I mean, it's it's those ways of behaving are often what happens when people are precisely, let's say, um, unfettered by women, unfettered by convention, and so on. I mean, drug use is very high in the gay male community. It really, really is. It's not just a stereotype it's a reality well, all of this could be said about about the you know that there's a higher rate of uh you know uh, crime or higher rate yeah. of violence in the black community people can say these things but if you depict black characters exclusively in that way it does reinforce stereotypes and limit people's sense of what's possible for a black character or for a black person and i, I think the film did this with gay characters and did this with gay people but it did it in a way that where it's protected from the critique because of the way in which it made the critique of this with respect to black people. Well, I mean, are you saying that you think the film is sort of like casually homophobic? Yes, of course it is. <laughs> okay. Of I course don't... it is. But it shielded think... itself from that <laughs> critique by pointing out that a lot of content that gets made for a white audience is casually okay. stereotyping l- l- or, well, or making it... fun of the groups sure. that it ostensibly is representing. But let me put it another way. I mean, are gay people or certain groups of people never to be depicted in negative ways? I mean, you know. Well, they certainly are not exclusively to be depicted in negative ways. But I don't. And this film went out of its way to depict him as as full of every possible fault. But then, then it gets out of it by saying, and despite all this, you know, he's he's somehow deeply wise, and that's the same thing that goes on with these novels about poor black characters. They uh, do all kinds of things that if they were done by a white character, you would regard as not acceptable, but you make excuses for it because it's a black character. And then, you know, they play it off like it's great representation. But I don't think a single film or a novel can take responsibility for positive representation. It's like, you know, it, it actually has to be possible for everyone to be human, that there are people within whichever group you're in, whether you choose to be or not, who do terrible things. I mean, there are women, believe it or not, Benjamin, who do terrible things. Right, right. but isn't this the same argument that the two professors have in the film? And it makes us have this argument about the gay (laughs) character, and that's why it gets away with having an extremely, extremely stereotypical gay character, because you can suppose that its purpose is to generate this argument rather than to make fun of gay people. I, I don't think it makes fun of it. I didn't feel particularly negative towards the gay character at all. I No, I but you're not supposed to feel negative toward the black character in these black novels. But nonetheless, these black characters are limited stereotypes of black people, right? Stere- stereotypes exist for a reason. I mean, if you had to say, like, what are the 10 things that you would associate negatively with women? I bet you could do it. Let's Let's go for it. Ten negative oh, things. You're... I don't have ten <laughs> negative things that I would I would associate with women in general. Oh, I would not do that. I I would not do that. Genuinely, genuinely would not. Why do not? That. And not just because we're on the podcast. Because I don't <laughs> think that women in general are that homogenous. Okay, but you can nevertheless. Right, women are not men. Right, I could say ten things that would be stereotypical of types of men that we would describe as negative. I mean, this is. I know you could do that. 
Well, and women. But you think that there's a, a much sharper difference between the sexes than I tend to think. No, I think there are tendencies. I think I think you know we're biologically different, and I think there is that that has necess- you know necessarily has consequences in terms of the kinds of behaviors that we are capable of. Yes, but there's a question about how far to take this point. Sure. But okay, let's let's go back to stereotypes. Let's let's take it away from any particular group. How on earth do stereotypes come about in the first place? Stereotypes come about in the first place because some behavior is disproportionately overrepresented among people who are for some reason or other grouped together. Okay, and where does that behavior come from? Depends on the behavior. Depends on the, the group. Okay, but, but stereotypes like function as shorthand for a reason, right? Not necessarily I mean, a good reason. <laughs> sure, but how, how, how can I put this? It's like if we wanted to- In fact, usually sh- a bad reason. Yeah, yes, quite often, quite often. But they come from somewhere. Like stereotypes are true to a limited degree. Like they tell you something. Like we can do it positively speaking. Like, I don't know, if we talk about Italians, we say Italians are very gestural, right? This is one's experience. If you go to Italy, Italians speak- it seems to someone from Northern Europe in, with their hands much more often than we do. Yeah, there's the Terry Eagleton point about stereotypes, which is, you know, if that he made about the Irish, which is because the Irish are from a particular material situation, there are certain things that come out of that material situation that are rooted in material reality that are not just ideational. And, and I agree to a point, to a point, but I think that this point is often taken too far and becomes an excuse to reify some of this stuff and take it overly seriously and to not just treat it as the output of a, of a contingent material situation. Okay, let's, let's take it to somewhere serious though. So like Dartmouth College have recently reintroduced the SAT, right? We're, we're coming to the end of an experiment with, a, with affirmative action. It's not to say that colleges aren't going to still, you know, insist on various forms of affirmative action, but we're coming to the end of that large-scale experiment because it didn't really work. And things that mitigate against um, SAT-type tests will punish Asian students in particular, many of whom have been excluded from Ivy League universities, whatever we think of these universities, um, on the basis of things like quotas. Right. So on the one hand, you have an image of a society in which you can let's say, have the correct, in inverted commas, numbers of people, right, from different groups, and they're included or, or, or you know, accepted into university partly, or in some cases, wholly on the basis of this group identity. On the other, you have another way of measuring human beings, which also has its downsides, um, which might be something like raw intelligence, if we can measure that to some extent. Which, which seeks in a meritocratic way to strip people precisely of the negative accoutrements of culture, right? So if you're a poor person growing up somewhere with low access to culture or books or whatever, and your education isn't very good, but you, are, you have potential, then these tests are designed to try to 
to re to recognize that right regardless of who you are right and this is the old liberal meritocratic model really yeah the trouble is that there's so much test preparation classes you can take it limits the effectiveness of that at grasping merit because the rich parents send their kids to enormous amounts of sat prep classes and buy them sat review books from the princeton review and all of that right so i mean we're talking fundamentally about a class issue that sometimes manifests itself as a race issue Maybe. Yeah. And to distract from the class aspect of this, people mm -hmm. have racialized it and framed it in racial terms. And the universities have facilitated that by overtly picking people on the basis of racial criteria. So they've moved the entire conversation about who has access to the better or higher ranking universities. You know, instead of a class conversation about whether all people ought to have access to good universities, it becomes a racial question, race versus merit, and the class character of the whole system is obfuscated by this. Yeah, for sure. But I don't know, to go back to the kind of question of of stereotypes and groups, I mean, on the one hand, we have this kind of paradox of uh, late liberalism, which is that, you know, everyone's an individual, everyone can accumulate character and, you know, in whatever way by collecting records or reading books and you know I mean, I mean we have we have terrible types of people roaming the earth like one of my least favorite is the the kind of gen x guy i mean this was depicted in a film we discussed before the worst person in the world you know where the the man who's sort of from my generation who's kind of a big, spent his whole life reading comic books and become obsessed with a kind of particular subculture and his whole identity and character is tied up with this kind of cultural identity right and and you know i i've met these people these men largely who think that having a great record collection is a replacement for being a good person or for having an interesting character um they do exist and we can say something about groups and we can generalize about this type of person and we ourselves are a type of person we can't avoid being a particular kind of person there are loads of things we can't choose about when we're born, who our parents are, where we grew up, right. and so on. Of course, when we talk about generations, it's very you know, overtly the case. And we always make it clear, insofar as it's not overtly the case, that we're talking about people who are shaped by a particular moment in capitalism, a particular period of material development that is different from now in various ways and different from previous periods in various ways. It's hard for people to confuse, say, uh, Gen X with essentially how people are of a particular group. Whereas I think some of these stereotypes that are to do with other things are more easily reified and naturalized and treated as if they come from an essences rather than something that is, is materially instantiated by the particular conditions that happen to prevail in which particular people happen to have been brought up. Right. But you have several things going on at once, right? You have this kind of pressure to be an individual, as it were, a liberal individual, right? Um, you have, but at the same time, you have this kind of idea of identification with a group, whether chosen or otherwise. And we could be talking about mental health identification. You know, we've seen the rise of people self-identify as, I don't know, autistic or whatever, you know, as, as part of a, a, an assumption of a kind of tribal belonging or a des desire, symptomatic of a desire to belong to a group that is not a family is not a race is not a sex is something else perhaps um 
at the same time as this kind of, you know, you have consumerist individualism, you have identitarian group belonging. And um, I don't know, at the same time, I guess, still residual ideas of universality and humanity and this kind of collective, you know, whole. Um, and I, I think the way in which people situate themselves in that is just a mess, frankly. And it's no, I suppose it's no wonder that stereotypes come about, right? Because they are a kind of shorthand, you know, and, and people do notice things, you know, and you don't, you don't spend your whole time kind of doing a kind of material predator like Marxist predator kind of structural analysis of everybody's socioeconomic position maybe we should try to historical position maybe we should try to before we you know go with what is immediately in front of us right immediately in front of us we see that a person who looks like this or or has this sexuality or what have you is behaving in this way and it's easy to just describe it to the identity group that they happen to claim to to try to take them at their word when they tell you who they are but oftentimes there's stuff that we can't see that shapes the way people turn out and it, just because we can't see it doesn't mean it's there and sometimes i think we add a reserve judgment and but go this goes well back to the film this is exactly what the woman says to him she says you know, you, you see potential, but saying that you see potential is basically to say you're not there yet, right? Yeah, but shouldn't you take very much the view that we're not there yet because you have the view that people need to build character and acquire the virtues and that people, as they're currently existing, are not good enough, that they don't have these virtues and, and, and character <laughs> and they need to build this and this needs to be encouraged and we need institutions and structures to build these things. I mean, isn't this the, you know, the standard conservative cultural critique is that everybody's lapsed into narcissism because the institutions are not guiding people toward the virtues in the way that they should. Well, I, I'm, I'm very anti-institution, so I'm not quite sure how we're going to do this because I'm- <laughs> Well, you think we need alternative institutions because you think the existing institutions that are supposed to play this role have been captured and debased, right? So you want other institutions that will give people the virtues. And if you well, instead I- just take people at their word and say that the way that they describe themselves is good enough, you know, then there would be no basis for trying to help people to you know, reach higher levels of consciousness or understanding or education. Or but I, I suppose the conservative point, and I'm not saying I'm, I'm you know, completely occupy this position, by the way, despite your best efforts to paint me as a conservative, but I, you know, I, the conservative position on this, as far as I understand it, would be something like, look, we have organic, we already exist in organic networks. So the family would be the most obvious one. However broken your family is, however deracinated you are, however alienated you might be from specific family members or, you know, and I, I, we all probably know people who are completely alienated from their families, at least for a points or they've fallen out or something terrible has happened. You know, families can be extremely abusive and so on. Or they're all dead. Yeah, or your family all dead, in which case, you know, you, you are like an orphan in the universe. And, you know, we, we've certainly moved historically to situations where there no longer are extended families. People don't tend to have huge amounts of cousins or live in places where they have family down the road or, you know, more loose kinship networks. You know, we are... 
living lower the, birth rates, smaller yeah, families. Extremely, extremely low birth rates pretty much everywhere now. Tiny families, nuclear families. You know, my parents have had two children. That's not really very many historically. Now that's the replacement rate is we're under replacement rate. Most most parts of the West and else increasingly elsewhere. So, yeah, sure. Right. So there's this historical shift, but it doesn't mean that people don't still have families and, and don't still have those kinds of ties, which are not reducible to spreadsheets and numbers and, you know, this kind of technocratic relations. Then they're, they're much well, more complicated. We don't have to be technocratic about it. We can just be, you know, Platonist or Aristotelian or even Thomist, you know, and say, the way that people are without social structures to ennoble them is pretty animalistic and, and not very impressive. And yet I see I see kind of a, a tension within a lot of social conservatism between the idea that we ought to just you know accept our natures, accept what's biological and stick with it. And this idea that we ought to be in some way ennobled, that we ought to acquire virtues or that we ought to be drawn but to I God think it's or precisely, something. But it's precisely on the basis of a recognition of our fallen nature. Do you see what I mean? It's it's the, the reason why you need the virtues and why you need Christianity, why you need the church is precisely because you are, one is fallen and broken. Right. And right. That's my point, that, that there are social conservatives who see people as fallen and broken and in need of these things. And then you have some people who say, well, what's natural is, is good enough and who are kind of uh, constantly trying to, the concept of the natural can either be normative or descriptive. Yeah. And- Sometimes these things get blurred in a way that I think confuses people. And I see some conservatives who are just taking whatever's there as good enough uh, because it's there, because it's natural, it must be good. And there are others who are saying, no, our true nature is something that we have to fully develop or fully realize, right? There's some kind of, of and that kind of conservatism is not that dissimilar to Marxism in the sense that there's a kind of, of self-realization project that needs to take place, whether it's Catholic or whether it's Marxist, you know, that there's something that we need to, to go to. And then there's another group of conservatives who have just decided that whatever occurs in the biological environment or whatever occurs genetically or whatever just happens to be out there, that that's just the way things are. And any attempt to get away from that or to improve upon that is unnatural or it's some kind of utopian silly thing. And those to me are very different projects. And yet oftentimes people in these two projects are voting for the same people or they're part of the same movement. And it seems kind of confused. I think online people have talked about this as a kind of Nietzschean conservatism mm -hmm. on the one hand, and maybe a kind of Thomist or, or, or Christian mm -hmm. conservatism on the other. Sure. I mean, I think, you know, the, the, the pagan Christian opposition is real. Like it's never gone away. You know, we have techno pagans. We have, you know, we have, I don't know, race obsessives. We, you know, we have people who are, um, yeah, I don't know, who would defend a kind of Nietzschean vitalistic naturalism um, of natural hierarchies and differences, right? Right. But so I'm seeing a little bit of a tension in some of the threads that have come out in this conversation where sure. at some points you seem to be kind of making one argument and at some points a little bit the other argument. And I wonder if you have a kind of, because sometimes when we've talked about these kinds of things, sometimes you seem to take a more Christian position and other times you seem to take a more naturalistic position. But maybe there's a, there's a way in which 
they're not completely in opposition. I mean, we are given a certain being, <laughs> you know. I mean, I I didn't choose to be female, right? I am female. The way in which you understand what is given to you, whether you see it as a gift, whether you see it as a curse, whether you see it as something to be altered with technology or with other forms of manipulation. I mean, it's it very much you know, your starting point is all important. And I, but I think there's a way in which there, there's a kind of Christian naturalism, you know, that, that's completely possible. It doesn't, it, it's, it's very complicated because it's partly historical and it partly has to include the entire historical shift from understanding things. But if we talk about something bigger, like tradition, like the Western tradition will incorporate precisely the pre-Socratics and Plato, the Greeks, the Romans, um, the Renaissance, Christianity, paganism, and so on, right? There's a way in which we have a shared heritage which has all kinds of disagreements and antagonisms within it, right? Including its own internal heresies, you know? I mean, the shutdown of Gnosticism on the on behalf of mainstream Christianity, you know, is, is absolutely massive. But it's impossible for us to understand that now exactly because we can't, Imagine how big Gnosticism was. It's different. Sure, yeah. We, we should be interested down. in explore the whole tradition, right? And right. not just the whole Western tradition, but there are so many different human traditions that are interesting to explore. But what I'm kind of trying to, to get at here is, is where are you? Where's your position here? If, you, if you're thinking in terms of a synthesis, how does that synthesis work? Well, I'm not. I'm not saying it, it. It does necessarily. I think you know. I mean, Judeo-Christianity itself is is very paradoxical. I mean, the God of the Old Testament is not the God of the New Testament in many ways, you know. And I, I think, I mean, you could say it's sort of um, dialectical. That would be a very Hegelian way of <laughs> putting it. Um, but we we come at the end of all of these different traditions, and and maybe. I guess a perennialist position would be to say, well, there's there's truth and wisdom in all of them, right? They're all different ways of looking at the same thing, something like this, you know. It depends on what scale and what level. I mean, to, to say that one is, let's say, primarily Christian rather than, I don't know, something else. I mean, what would be the major? I mean, you could say Nietzschean, let's say. Like, why why be a Christian rather than a Nietzschean? Well, because one is convinced of the truth of Christianity. Right, that one accepts that to believe certain things, that's what's necessary to be a Christian. But they're not they're not subject to the same kinds of truth conditions as let's say a scientific experiment, right? Like this is where the complexity comes, I guess, between various forms of faith and knowing. You know, it, it's not um you know, the Nietzschean position is fundamentally a diagnostic one, I would say. I mean, Nietzsche's metaphysics are a very open-ended question. You know, what, yes, what there's is... what Nietzsche thinks, and then there's the kind of use of Nietzsche that I'm gesturing at when I make right. this distinction. And I'm not trying to say that, that the actual Nietzsche just is this particular iteration of Nietzscheanism that you find online. But I do think there is a, a big difference between the position that there are different races that have different qualities that are essential on the basis of, of nature, right? And the idea that everybody is equal before God and everybody's got a soul 
and everybody is meant to be fully I, human. I think we can absolutely reconcile these things. I wouldn't use the word race. I would talk about population. And I think there's there are very distinct differences between men and women, for example. And I do think there are different tendencies depending on where various populations have, you know, grown up in particular environments. And this is measurable to some degree and it doesn't matter to other degrees. Right, but yeah, people right. are nat naturalizing these differences. They're not just taking them as the result of contingent material phenomena. There's a non-trivial number of people who do naturalize these things and say that these are essences that correspond with genetics. And I do think that that has to be pushed back against because that is a gross distortion. Is it not? Well, we're at an hour, so I think we should continue this discussion on the B side. All right. Thank you guys so much for listening and have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.